0: You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 14th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio.
1: Indonesia votes for a cuddly grandpa who just might be an autocrat. China recognises the Taliban's regime in Afghanistan. And Americans will no longer have to ask Valentine's dates about their credit scores. I'm Chris Chermack. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you live from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Chris Chermack. My guests, Melissa Fung and John Everard, will discuss the day's big stories and we will check in with our Toronto correspondent, Thomas Lewis, for news of the Jordanian King's North American tour. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily, and I'm Chris Chermak. I'm joined today by Melissa Fung, journalist, filmmaker, and author of Between Good and Evil, The Stolen Girls of Boko Haram, and by John Everard, former British diplomat to North Korea, Belarus, among other places. Hello to you both, and happy Valentine's Day.
2: And happy Valentine's Day to you too, Chris.
0: (laughs) You too, Chris, and to you, John.
1: Thank you. What, what are our feelings on Valentine's Day? We will be discussing a little bit of this later, but, but general feelings, is it, is it all a shtick to get us all to buy cards and roses?
2: Yeah, it could be, but I, I'm a, a kind of die-hard soppy, uh, and anything <laughs> that gives me an excuse to to present flowers to the woman I love and and card and stuff, I, I'm up for that. Um, I having said that, yeah, to get stuff to buy stuff. My late father, I think, had it nailed. He bought one Valentine's card, quite a big one, um, in his kind of late forties, and just used to use the same card, writing on "I still love you" each year.
1: <laughs> we're going right, right, right to the end <laughs> on the way down i see All okay the way just down. keep that's going right, through yes. that's, smaller, that's very nice that's, that's a nice way that's Mel- a
0: great idea i think that i'll start that next valentine's day with my husband
1: M- melissa i heard you got one rose you were telling me earlier
0: i did and you know having walked by the local florist um in our neighborhood i noticed that the prices for arrangements were through the roof And that's not just inflation, it's Valentine's Day. (laughs) No, it's just for this day. And so if my husband had bought me, you know, anything bigger, I think I would have been upset that he bought into the consumerism. (laughs)
1: Well, we will start the program today. We'll come back to Valentine's Day. but well, we'll start the program in Indonesia, the world's third largest democracy, which voted today and already has preliminary results that put current Defense Minister Prabowo Subianto in the lead. Prabowo has told supporters he expects to win the 50% needed to avoid a runoff, although his two opponents are waiting for the official results that will not be announced for a few days or even weeks. Uh, John... I found it interesting, you know, looking through this past week, the headlines on Prabowo range from ex-army strongman and autocrat to cuddly grandpa based on his campaign. Which one do you feel is more accurate?
2: Describing Prabhu Subiantu as cuddly, I think, is stretching a point just a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is the man who was indicted by the United States uh, for massacres in Timor Leste, uh, the man who caused all those ethnic Chinese to mysteriously disappear. Uh, he's got a certain amount of blood on his hands. And okay, maybe he's reformed, but the fact that uh, he protested uh, both the 2014 and the 2019 elections remember, he ran against mm. Chokoi twice, uh, lost both times, insisted there was. Fraud and so on doesn't suggest strong democratic credentials to me. I mean, I'm prepared to cut the guy some slack and see if how he shapes up. But the initial omens aren't that great.
1: Melissa, do you do you get the sense that there's a fear that sort of Indonesia's democracy is backsliding based on that, or do you buy in any way into Prabowo's sort of cuddly grandpa makeover campaign for the young people in Indonesia? Can people change as they get older?
0: I think the concern is that democracy is backsliding because who is behind his campaign? It was Joko, who's be, who seems to feel like this is a third term. And I think that's where um, people are becoming concerned that he is sort of pulling the puppet strings here. And instead of, you know, um, trusting the democratic process, um, he is trying to give himself a third term, so to speak. I mean, his son is going to be the vice president. So, you know, how much influence is he going to have if this is, you know, the end result? Um, That remains to be seen.
1: Well, and John, I will ask you to move a little closer to the mic for our listeners. But um, how will the region, do you feel, kind of react in that sense to Prabowo? Partly, as Melissa said, I mean, with... The current president, there has been a sort of revival of Indonesia in many ways. Do we expect that to change? Will what kind of player do you see him as being in the region? Ally of China, ally of the West, somewhere in the middle? I don't think he has
2: much love for China. Uh, like I say, he does have mm. uh, quite a lot of Chinese blood on his hands, and that won't be for- forgiven or forgotten by either side. Uh, he is an int- instinctive, strong nationalist. Uh, And I suspect that although he will tend much more to the United States than to China, uh, the relationship is going to be prickly. Indonesia is not going to be an easy partner for the United States, or indeed for the region. I mean, it's it's too big a country for regional partners to start wagging fingers and saying they don't like the election results. Uh, But I suspect that behind closed doors, they're a little bit worried.
1: Mm. And Melissa, I wonder what your sense is just of this election, kind of the world was watching this very closely. It it felt like more closely than maybe past elections in Indonesia. Where does that come from for you? Is it a sign of the kind of waking up to Indonesia's relevance both in the region and in the world? I mean, it is a country that is going to be the world's sixth largest economy in 2027, according to the IMF, passing Russia and the UK.
0: I think going back to what you know, your introduction to the story, it is the world's third largest democracy, 205 million registered voters. More than half of those are under the age of 40. And so I think it's being watched so closely as sort of a harbinger of the elections that are still going to happen later this year with the U.S. voting um, in, in November. And so I think everybody's looking at this as the first, you know, whether democracy, you mm-hmm. know, and, and and looking at it like uh, could be, is it a trend for the elections that are still to come, um, where we're talking about democracy being on the line.
1: Mm. John, just finally on that, what's your sense? You said as he he is a a nationalist. Is that kind of where our elections it feels like are trending right now? I I don't detect a global trend of that kind. To be honest, I I, I think um, the
2: world is is very fragmented. Indonesia, the United States, I mean, the UK, all these countries uh, have their own dynamics and will produce probably quite different results. Uh, and I think it's worth stressing that if we start to worry about democracy that the actual process appears to have been in. Quite, quite intact. Uh, A lot of electoral officials worked very, very hard to make an extremely complex election work um, over, you know, over a thousand different islands, lots and lots of different language groups. But it was actually, as far as we
1: can tell, a clean election. And that counts for a lot. Well, let's now head across the world to Canada, where Jordan's King, Abdullah II, is visiting and holding talks with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau a little bit later today. It's part of a North America swing for Jordan's King this week and comes as Israel and Hamas face further pressure to agree a ceasefire deal in Gaza. Well, I'm joined now first of all on the line by Monocle's Toronto correspondent, Thomas Lewis. Thomas, what brings Jordan's King to Canada?
3: Well, as you said, Chris, quite rightly,
1: it is part of this North American tour
3: by King Abdullah um, at a very precarious time, of, of course, in the negotiations between Israel and Hamas. In the past few hours, we have just seen news that uh, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has decided not to send uh, Israeli negotiators back to Egypt to discuss the the current plan on the table, which is what President Joe Biden uh, made quite a, a big deal out of during his meeting with the King of uh, Jordan at the White House uh, on Monday. So that's kind of kind of thrown things off, uh, potentially. Uh, but I think over the years, we've seen Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Canada's Prime Minister and the King of Jordan, um, have quite warm relations. The last time the King was here was back in January 2023 to discuss the ongoing uh, support by, by Western countries for, for Ukraine's military. Um, and I think, you know, it'll be a sort of two-way discussion, if you like. The King of Jordan has been among the most vocal critics among Arab leaders, uh, calling for an immediate ceasefire of hostilities in Gaza and also also calling, for example, on the resumption of funding for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. Now, Canada was among one of those countries to pull funding from uh, that agency after Israeli-made allegations that some of its employees were involved in the October 7th attacks. So there will be a lot to discuss when he arrives. I think that meeting is scheduled to begin at about 4.30 p.m. our time, Chris, so in a couple of hours time.
1: Uh, given some of those differences that you laid out there, Thomas, I mean, what do you kind of expect in terms of a statement from this? Presumably they will paper over uh, much, much of that. But what's your kind of sense of just how aligned the two of them are on this and whether they really have any sway, frankly, with, with some of the bigger powers that are directly involved in the negotiations?
3: Oh, it's a really good question. I think perhaps the differences might be a little sort of slimmer than they were in in Washington on Monday. But I think like in the US, here in Canada, popular support, for example, for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza is and has been extremely high. So you would think that uh, the Jordanian king would have a very receptive audience in the public imagination, at least even if the the politicians he's meeting uh, might have different sort of agendas, if I can put it that way. That way to, to have to adhere to. Um, I think it will be interesting given that we saw just to go back to the press conference at the White House on Monday, you know, the King of Jordan was very explicit once again in calling for an immediate ceasefire in using language that's just far more sort of blunt and explicit than, for example, we heard from President Biden, even if President Biden's tone towards Israel, for example, has certainly shifted uh, in in recent uh, times. um, I think the tone of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's uh, sorry, the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will maybe a little bit more in line with that given that Canada joined the calls for a for what it calls a sustainable ceasefire back in uh, December. And like you say, you know, this is really sort of a test, I guess, of what sort of smaller, maybe more middle powers um, can do. Obviously, you know, in the region, King Abdullah is no small power. He has a very influential voice. So I suppose it'll be a two-way discussion in terms of what the West is now, where the West is at, if you like, on what its sort of stances towards these negotiations that appear to be ongoing in Egypt, uh, but also kind of the mood from uh, from the Arab world, from the Middle East, from the King himself. So whether that the details of that translate themselves into the niceties of the joint press conference we're expecting later remains to be seen, Chris. But it uh, uh, should be a discussion where, where both sides uh, get to have their say. I'd say.
1: Well, just finally, Thomas, you did mention, you know, positive reception in Canada, maybe not quite such a positive reception in the U.S. What was your sense of that meeting with Joe Biden and how that was received and really whether Jordan's king will have any impact, you feel, on kind of changing minds or approaches to Gaza during this North America tour?
3: Well, it's interesting because I think, you know, the King of Jordan is someone who does garner quite a lot of respect in the, the White House and the halls of power uh, in the United States. And there was certainly that air uh, about the sort of uh, public aspects of of the sort of official arrival at the White House, the, the meet and greet, those um, kind of things. I think it was interesting, given that we were expecting kind of quite a stark difference between the language of President Biden and the language of the Jordanian King. As I said, you know, President Biden's tone has shifted quite a lot in putting a little bit more, well, quite a lot more pressure on the Israeli side of the operation, for example, to ensure that there's a concrete plan to ensure the safety of Palestinian civilians in in Rafah before any uh, ground uh, incursion by the Israeli military gets underway. So perhaps it wasn't quite as stark a contrast as we might have expected. And I think that is because the reality in the United States, as it is here in Canada, is that public opinion is very squarely on the side and ceasing hostilities in Gaza at the moment. So that is very much a balancing act that both President Biden, of course, as, as a, a leader in in these efforts to to broker sort of a, a ceasefire and a peace deal that's acceptable to all sides, but also here in Canada as well, um, that you know those those are you know those are a, a concerns in the public mind that, that need to be addressed one way or another.
1: Thomas Lewis, thank you very much for joining us. Let's bring our panel back in now. Uh, Melissa, perhaps to start with you, what did you make of this trip to Canada? What's kind of... We were talking earlier about Trudeau's line in this being quite tricky, the stake that he has in this conflict, and he's try, kind of tried to have it both ways.
0: He really has, and it hasn't been very popular. Um, I think most Canadians... was A new poll came out earlier this week, Angus Reid, showing that almost... Half of Canadians think Israel has been too heavy handed and they do want a ceasefire. But on the same page, they think that Trudeau has just been too wishy washy in asking for that ceasefire, in trying to walk this fine line. Um, you know, they abstained from the UN vote in October mm. for the ceasefire, only then to issue a statement in December that they are looking for a sustainable ceasefire. Um, and so I think, generally speaking, you know, he, Trudeau, is, is maybe trying to um, get the confidence back of the electorate, because there's a chance that they're going to the polls uh, this year as well. And so, you know, mo- the majority of Canadians think he's done a terrible job at upholding international laws, at... You know, speaking out against what they see is, you know, Israel's heavy-handedness, and and so he, you know, he's still trying to walk this line. It'll be interesting to see um, at the end of this meeting with the king um, what kind of statement he 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 gives.
1: John, it's been interesting, I think, because both of these countries, frankly, have been somewhat on the sidelines of this debate. I mean, what do you make of Jordan's role in this conflict? It's relatively quiet until now. It's not part of the mediation with like Egypt and Qatar are, for example. Saudi Arabia even is a bit more engaged. What do you make of Jordan's King's role? Yes, surprisingly low-key. I mean, Mm. given where
2: Jordan is, you would expect it a a much more um, engaged posture from the Jordanians. But you're right; Uh, they've tended to stand back. They have uh, often kind of hidden in the pack, you know, and just got along with broad Arab opinion. They have occasionally attempted to lead. That opinion. Uh, we've had uh, one or two recent, quite strongly worded statements from the king, but it's not at all clear that they've actually managed to, 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 to swing it. And you do get the sense of a country that's just waiting to see what happens, is trying to keep uh, some kind of equidistance uh, from the, the, the two sides, uh,
1: but doesn't actually have anything like as much influence on events as it might like. Well, let's move on to Afghanistan for now, where the Taliban has recently gained the recognition of a major global power in China. Bilal Karimi, the former Taliban spokesman, has been recognized as the country's envoy to China, along with some 300 other country diplomats at a ceremony in Beijing that does make China the first country in the world to recognize the Taliban regime. Melissa, you've been to Afghanistan many times before, had some pretty harrowing experiences there, frankly. What do you make of this? I mean, Taliban is an objectively awful regime in terms of human rights. How significant is this recognition?
0: Well, you know, there's a long history, Chris, of um, Chinese interests in Afghanistan. When I first started going 15, 20 years ago, you know, the Chinese were already in there building roads, um, helping the... um, Afghan government at the time with infrastructure projects and things like that. And of course, now with the U.S. presence gone, I think, you know, China's really trying to position itself as a power broker in the region, as well as being very interested in the natural resources that Afghanistan has to offer. Um, You know, a major Chinese oil company last year signed a 25-year, I think, you know, half a billion dollar deal for oil extraction Um, and a mining company signed another major deal for, you know, one of the biggest copper mines that the world has has ever seen, um, south of Kabul, still yet to be built. And so I think, you know, there's economic interest. And also, there is security interest, because that is China's westernmost border. Mm-hmm. And so they want to make, the Chinese probably want to make sure that it's Muslim minority and, you know, doesn't, there's no back and forth between you know what it sees as terrorists. Um, and they want to make sure that border is, is very secure. John, I mean, as a former
1: diplomat uh, stationed in some countries with some quite, well, let's say regimes with very poor human rights records as well, I just wonder what your take kind of is on China doing this, whether other countries will follow suit. What's the importance of kind of Is there a stage where even with a regime like the Taliban, you you have to recognize it and engage in some way?
2: I think the big question is not why has China done this, it's why has China done it now? Mm. Uh, Why the long delay? China... Uh, typically pursues a completely values-free foreign policy. It will do business with anybody provided they actually are in power. And I don't think that Beijing would blink to do business with the Taliban. But it's taken them, what, two years to mm-hmm. actually accept credentials from a Taliban ambassador. And even then, they put out this absolutely extraordinary statement saying that just because they accept credentials doesn't mean they recognize the regime. I mean, you know, overturning... That doesn't really work, does it? <laughs> doesn't, doesn't really work. No, I mean, and Sure, the, the foreign ministry know this. They're just making themselves look stupid. I think the hesitation on the Chinese side is likely to be the expense. I mean, Melissa is absolutely right. There is uh, there are commercial gains uh, to uh, invest involvement in Afghanistan, but at the same time, a country that has seen its GDP drop by thirty five percent since the takeover, thirty percent food insecurity. The Taliban will hold out an enormous begging bowl to China. Uh, looking after the Taliban could prove to be a very, very expensive hobby. And the Chinese economy is stuttering badly. The days when China went around the world building roads, bridges and so on, as Melissa pointed out, they, they did a while ago in Afghanistan. Those days are past. And I suspect that the relationship is going to be just a little bit fractious as the Taliban discover that they're not going to get what they want. I also
0: think the Chinese, sorry, um, have seen what's happened with their Belt and Road Initiative in places like Africa, in Nigeria, you know, in uh, poorer countries, like, like much like Afghanistan, and they are saddled with, you know, debt. Right. They these countries cannot afford to pay, repay China for what China's invested. And so maybe, you know, the caution is that they've learned that lesson, you know, from some of these other places where the Belt and Road Initiative has has been successful, but has left Beijing holding the bag.
1: Oh, go ahead. Absolutely,
2: Melissa makes a very good point. The other side of that coin is that one of the things that came out in the great Belt and Road Jamboree last uh, October, wasn't it, the one that Putin went to, uh, was that disbursements under Belt and Road have dropped by 90, 90 Quite simply, the initiative has run out of cash. So on the one hand, you get all these governments who borrowed heavily under Belt and Road and can't repay. And you've got the Chinese who can't extend the loans, give more finance because they are out of money, too. It's rather a rather sad situation.
1: Melissa, I did just wonder to turn it from China in a way to the Taliban themselves. What's your sense of kind of... How important this kind of international recognition is for the Taliban? Does it matter to them? I was at a a forum, the Antalya Diplomacy Forum, a couple of years ago, which included the Taliban in talks and even the U.S. met with them on the sidelines of that. They seem to be kind of basking in the attention. What do you feel?
0: I think this is the first time they feel recognized, even though the Chinese did put out that statement saying, what well, doesn't mean recognized. But I think the Taliban, this is the kind of recognition that they've been looking for. And they know China is not going to press them on women's rights. Um, and, you know, by the same token, the Taliban are not going to press the Chinese on their treatment of the Muslim minority either. So, you know, it It is sort of um, mutually, they're going to stay out of each other's internal affairs. Um, And, you know, there's a big UN conference happening in in Qatar in a few days on Afghanistan. It will be interesting to see, you know, how the Chinese play a role at that conference.
1: John, just finally or quickly on this, do, do you expect any other countries to follow suit now that China has taken this move? I suspect that
2: Russia will want to form some kind of relationship with the Taliban. Russia's relationship with Afghanistan, of course, uh, complicated, I think is the polite word. Uh, but And I suspect that others of the, uh, the what the Iranians call the axis of resistance might well follow suit. But there are complications in all those potential relationships. And if it's taken the Chinese getting on for two years to accept credentials from a Taliban ambassador,
1: I suspect that the other countries involved are going to see similar delays. Well, let's move on to North Korea now, where the news today is that the private emails of an aide to South Korean President Yoon Suk Yeol were hacked by North Korea. Among other things, they reportedly hacked into the president's travel schedule just ahead of a trip to the UK last November. And there are some reports that messages have been stolen, although Yoon's office has not given further details on exactly what was stolen. John, this has a little bit of a... Hillary Clinton's email scandal to it, feel to it, because the aide was apparently using a private server rather than the government server. But how serious is this? It's not
2: serious. I mean, the fact that it happened uh, will dismay the South Korean security officials. Uh, But it happened, as they rightly pointed out, because somebody was stupid. You do not uh, conduct Official correspondence on a private email if you know that you are, are, are likely to be scanned by the, the North Koreans. Uh, so it was, it was a one off. Uh, it's, yes, Hillary Clinton, as you rightly say, uh, but just a small subset of the massive North Korean hacking operation. Uh, I mean, North Korea hacks almost everything that moves, it hacks for money. Uh, they, less and less. Uh, back in 2022, they managed to hack the, their way through. One point seven billion dollars. They had a good year, down to six hundred million in 2023. But even so, uh, experts believe that the money they get from hacking, largely on crypto exchanges, pays roughly half of their missile development costs. So it goes to a bad end. But they also spend a lot of time hacking people like me. I mean, I, I uh, because I've been involved with North Korea uh, for a long time and said lots of things that have deeply upset the North Korean people. Uh, I am constantly attacked by various various groups in North Korea, Lazarus and Kinsuki, trying to get into my email account, trying to break into my computer, and so on. Uh, and this isn't just your average scam hacking. I mean, I, we, you know, we're all used, I think, uh, to getting emails with very dodgy attachments. It's they they take great care. They 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 craft emails uh, for probably non-existent conferences, but the kind of things that I might be interested in with the conference agenda just to click away and and you're in. So uh, I suppose <laughs> I should be almost flattered at getting all this tension, but frankly, it
1: can be a bit of a nuisance. I, I can certainly imagine that. Uh, Melissa, I, I did want to ask you sort of on the side of that, as a, as a journalist, if you've ever experienced hacking or what kind of precautions you generally take also going into, you know, conflict zones, autocratic regimes, all of that.
0: I probably should take more precautions than I do. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I was warned by authorities in Canada that my, um, you know, they knew, they knew that another government was monitoring some of my correspondence, um, which kind of surprised me because I didn't really think that I was doing anything that would upset anybody, unlike you, John. Um, so, you know... I, I'm probably, I need to probably be more careful than I am, Um, and I generally don't, you know, I mean, just as we're sitting here, I got an email saying that uh, order update, we have received your payment. Kindly click on the attached bill, you know, from somebody named Elvira Cryer. Who oh, the
1: amount of those that e- I get in my emails, is, the phishing is absolutely it's, ridiculous. These it's days. crazy.
0: I don't know if that's hacking or what it is, but they're hoping to. They're hack. hoping to hack. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: John, just very quickly, finally, I just did want to ask you as well. Just the news coming out of North Korea that Japan's Prime Minister is planning talks with North Korea's Kim Jong Un. Is that a good idea? Yawn. Here we go again. (laughs) It's that time
2: in the Japanese electoral cycle, everybody. Uh, You run out of ideas. You can't fit the Japanese economy. Your administration is riddled with corruption. What do you do? You try outreach to North Korea. Nothing to be lost. The chances are the North Koreans will say no, like they always do. But you might might just get that breakthrough. Great photo op, shaking hands with Kim Jong-un, getting the hostages home. It's not going to happen,
1: but it's all good press. It's all great press. Well, finally on today's show, it is Valentine's Day and while yesterday we had an Andrew Muller, and guests talking about breaking up with a pizza delivery. Listen back to that if you want the juicy details. Today we are going to talk about dating, because there is a new dating app out there. There's always a new app, and this one sifts out the riffraff by using your credit score. Yes, that's right. Score is an app that lets you score on dates in the U.S., but only if you have a credit score of 675 or above. Now, this final segment can get personal very fast, but I'm going to ask if either one of you would like to out yourselves as having ever used an online dating app or as proud of your credit score.
2: I don't know what my credit score is and no, I've never used an online dating app. I, uh, I, I, I'm I, still of the generation where you, you met potential partners at tea dances. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that sounds much better to me, I have to be honest, than than online dating. M- Melissa, have you had any experience of this at all or did you ever wish that you would have had this opportunity to sort of quiz your, uh, for a partner, a former partner on financial information?
0: <laughs> I, you know, that's... That's a good question. I think if, if this was available to me when I was in my 20s, you know, that would have been great. But that was before the Internet. So um, I think, you know, it's, it's come a little too late for me. What,
1: was there ever a point in, in conversations with partners, was there a point where you broached the finances and kind of ask, you know, is there, are there credit card debts that I need to know about?
0: I th- I think you know I think maybe some of some of my previous partners would have wanted to ask me that before I asked them so you know I of course being a journalist it's pretty obvious that you know my my what my credit score would be um <laughs> But we'll just leave it at that, shall we, Chris? That's that's a good way to leave it. Uh,
1: John, I did want to ask on a a different front on this. One of the things we were talking about in the office, there were quite mixed views on this, whether we think people are dating more within their own class these days or not. There's some research that online dating kind of leads you to look, well, look at looks instead of class or where a person comes from. But then there were others who said we live in our own bubbles. Uh, full disclosure: I married way outside my class, so I,
2: I, I guess I'm a sort of prequel to just this discussion. Um, is are, are we more class-bound now in our dating than we used to be? I'm not so sure we are. I I, I I think actually, if although it's very hard to get any kind of hard data on this, but if you did, I suspect you'd show that the, 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 the that 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 is a fairly constant uh, variable uh, through, throughout all this. That people, some people have married outside the class, others haven't. Some people have married for money well before the internet but just bef- before we get too excited about the app remember that in british india uh, the fishing fleet as they were called the young single women who went out to try to nab a, a husband amongst the british officials in india used to memorise the salary scales of the indian government before going so if you met somebody at a dart, you knew exactly how much he earned and how much time you were to
1: spend with him that That is absolutely amazing. Uh, <laughs> Melissa, just finally, one, one other... Relating to that class, I'm just curious about one other trend in the U.S. that I've heard quite a lot about. People are more likely to date someone of a different skin color these days. That's the positive. But they're more likely to do that than someone of a different political party.
0: Oh, that's a touchy question. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in the U.S. Um, you know, I once found out that somebody I was dating back in graduate school was of a different political stripe. And that was basically the last date that I had with him. So
1: so this is not new is this what you saying. This
0: is what I'm saying. It's not new. It's not <laughs> new. We <laughs> have always looked at political
1: and so many other things.
0: I think I think the politics and I think what's new is that it's so much more polarized than it was when I was dating in my 20s. And so, you know, maybe it's not, maybe it doesn't take a date, even maybe it's just upon meeting, you automatically know and then there's no date.
1: John, did you ever look at political class when you were dating? No,
2: I didn't in my innocence. I used to sort of charge right ahead and not worry too much about the politics,
1: but I I guess I was a bit of an outlier that way. John and Melissa, thank you very much for joining us and happy Valentine's Day, everybody. That is all the time we have for this edition of The Monocle Daily. A big thanks to my panellists today, Melissa Fung and John Everard, and to Thomas Lewis in Toronto. Today's show was produced by Tom Webb and researched by Neoma Aequay, our sound engineer, with Sarah Nichol. I'm Chris Chermack here in London. The Monocle Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Goodbye, and thanks for listening.